to our message this morning. Um, our focus this morning is going to be on Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. If you're following along in a Bible or on a Bible app, um, get to that point. Matthew 15. Again, our focus today will be on verses 21 through 28, and we'll go to several other scriptures, so be ready to hop along with us. Um, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever just known something um, and you had no reason to know it? Uh, you had a feeling or a hunch or something inside of you that just made you resolute in something when everybody around you was telling, telling you that you're crazy. And maybe some of you are sitting beside that thing or that person this morning. Everybody else said you're crazy, but you just knew it was the right person, right? <clears throat> not him, not her, they might have said. Or maybe it was a job that you knew that you were going to get, although you weren't the most qualified or the most polished applicant. Maybe it was something bad. Maybe you had a medical condition that all the doctors said you didn't have. But you just knew that you knew that you knew. And then finally somebody uh, diagnosed it after you pushed and said, something's not right with my body. And while there are many times when things like that turn out to be wrong, there are times when things like that turn out to be right. Uh, I've had wrong hunches. I've had wrong thoughts, wrong beliefs that didn't work out. But sometimes they do work out. And, and you just press on until you verify it. So what I want to ask you this morning is what is your faith in in those situations when you just know that you know? Usually it's something inside of you. You can't really put your finger on it, but it's there. And so you press on. What we're going to see this morning is that very kind of thing, but we're going to see it in a most extraordinary way, in what I think is an extraordinary passage in the life of a truly extraordinary woman. So if we would, let's turn to Matthew 15, and we're going to read verses 21 to 28, and we re-verify and we re-attest that we do believe these are the very words of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and empowered by the Spirit in our lives to make a difference in our lives, to draw us closer to God and to make us more like Jesus. So here's the passage, Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, speak and be heard. We ask that you would do something in our lives, individually and corporately, that couldn't be done other than with the power of your Spirit. God, we need you. We proclaim that. And we know that you are able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we could think or imagine. Do it in our lives. Do it in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. So, we start here in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, we left off last week with Jesus addressing the crowd that had assembled in Gennesaret uh, about what actually defiled a person, which he said was what came out of the mouth, not what goes into the mouth. 
he was combating at that time the pharisaical traditions that taught that you had to wash your hands in order to be ceremonially clean before you ate. Again, they weren't worried about germs and stuff like that. They were, it was ceremony. And Jesus said that it's the condition of our hearts, not the wetness of our hands, that determined our holiness. And we said last week that when he said these things, that it was pretty much revolutionary. He was turning their eyes, their ears, their hands, and their hearts away from years of tradition and onto the work that he was doing to fulfill the law and to give salvation by grace to those who would place their faith in him. Now, as we enter today's text, we find Jesus going away from Gennesaret, away from that familiar area on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and withdrawing to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, I had posted here on the Facebook page a map that shows kind of the distance uh, from Capernaum up to Tyre and Sidon. It's, it's, it's going to be important that we know the distance there if we're going to get the thrust of this passage today. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are um, northwest of the of Capernaum and Gennesaret. Um, so they move from the top of the, the, the Sea of Galilee there up to the west and north to this area. But it wasn't just a hop, skip, and a jump away. If you saw the map, and if you didn't, you can look at it later. Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, was about 40 miles away from Capernaum and Gennesaret. Now, we can jump in a car and go 40 miles in less than an hour, maybe less than half an hour, depending on how you drive. Um, but anybody want to take a 40-mile hike with a group of 12 other people? These guys, these guys were hoofing it, okay? And then Sidon was another good 30 miles or so from Tyre. So this is a good long trek that they're making here on foot. And um, part of the definition of that word for withdrew, it says that Jesus withdrew to Tyre and Sidon. Part of the definition of that word withdrew means to shun sight. Jesus was seeking in this time to lay low. And in order to do so, he had to get out of the areas that he was prone to be in. He was too high profile. He was too well known to just stay where he was if he was going to have any kind of hope of not being surrounded by a crowd. And we've seen that everywhere he goes, there's a crowd surrounding him, pushing in, trying to touch him, trying to get him to come to them. So he takes this 40-mile hike up to Tyre and then another 30 miles up to Sidon. They needed rest, Jesus and his men. They needed to get away from the curiosity of the crowds and the accusations of the religious elite. So they go into Gentile country. They go into pagan country. It's a retreat, a time to be away from the normal and the everyday. And this area of Tyre and Sidon was kind of a cosmopolitan kind of area. It's, it's seacoast. They're withdrawn to, it's almost like a beach vacation type of thing. They had seaports there and had access to people from all over the world. Ships coming in from all over trading and, and moving things. And so this was a different kind of location than they had been in before. Um, this is not the seclusive religious Israel. This is not Jerusalem or Capernaum. This is the big wide world. Okay? And I would guess, I don't know this for sure, but I would guess some or all of these disciples had never been to this area of the world before. But they are withdrawing into this area, out of the norm, out of the routine, and into new places with new faces, and hopefully to find some rest, to kind of reset in a way. Now the question is, does it work? And the answer is no. Verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came. She came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Well, look at this. Jesus, in a new place, in a place where you would think that nobody knows him, well, they know Jesus. Mark puts it this way in Mark 7, 24 and 25. And from there he arose and went away to the, Tyre, uh, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Not only had Jesus walked 40 miles to get away from people who knew him, he entered a house, Mark says, and did not want anyone to know. And then Mark emphasizes, yet he could not be hidden. Indeed. We've seen in the past that Jesus' fame was extending way past Capernaum, even out from Israel, when we saw back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 20, through 25. This is back way back at the beginning of his ministry. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So again, remember, that was back at the beginning of his ministry. And those outside of Israel were already hearing about and coming to Jesus at that time. Now, at least a year, probably maybe a little more later, from that what we just read in Matthew 4, his fame has spread to this distant land, and, and farther, I'm sure, as we can see back here in Matthew 15.22. Jesus, seeking to get away and to be hidden, not wanting anyone to know where he was, is found out. It says, And behold, Matthew says, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and starts crying out to him. Now let's pause right there and learn what we can about this lady. Okay, She's coming in with some strikes against her from the outset. First, she's a she. Uh, women held a place below men on the social ladder in this place and time, to say the least. And we've talked about this in other places in our study of Matthew, but just for a quick reminder, Jewish men weren't supposed to even talk to women in public. Women were pretty much sold for dowry as wives to men. And so many times, those men were much older than the girls that were sold to them. And we don't really have context in our minds, in our culture today, of where women stood in that culture. So that's strike one. She's a woman. Strike two, she comes from Tyre. Now, she's not only a woman, she's a non-Jewish woman. She's a foreigner. Jews had no dealings with Gentiles, or in other words, non-Jews. In the Jewish mind, there's two types of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles were those who were not Jews. Gentiles were not God's chosen people. And then strike three for her is that she's not just a Gentile, but she's a Canaanite. Now, who did the Jews take the promised land from when they came back from Egypt after the Exodus? It was the Canaanites. It was the land of Canaan that they took. And Canaanites, who should have been completely destroyed by the Israelites, by the way, were pagan to the core. They were heinous sinners who were known to be completely detached from God or anything about him. And this Gentile Canaanite woman is crying out to Jesus to help her. Help her with what? She cries out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And let me just say that, that statement that she just made is loaded, absolutely loaded with implications. 
The first thing she does is ask Jesus for mercy on her. Now, this word mercy is important, and we sang about it in our songs there. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That word mercy sets the tone for her petition and really sets the tone for who she is. What is mercy? Now, we've described mercy this way before. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. Now, don't don't run by that. Think about it. In asking for mercy, she's asking that she not get what she deserves. Think about that a second. Mercy is letting someone off the hook who is guilty. You deserve punishment, but don't get it. A call for mercy puts someone on the receiving end of what gets done or not done. Someone calling for mercy can't help themselves. They are literally, we say, at someone else's mercy. And this, and that's exactly what this woman's cry is. Have mercy on me. Now watch this. O Lord, Son of David. Again, don't run by that. What did she just call Jesus? O Lord, Son of David. Wow. That's picking that up. The microphone's up. We're recording on right there. So she calls Jesus, O Lord, Son of David. What she is confessing is that Jesus is Lord, which is a confession of his godness. That word Lord can infer sir in that culture. It has that kind of feel at times. But we know that that's not what she's saying here because then she calls him Son of David. That is a messianic title, referring to the one that God would the one sent from God who would reign on David's throne forever, King David from back in the Old Testament. The son of David was the Messiah who would come into the world and reign forever, establishing God's kingdom on earth. Now get a hold of this. This Gentile Canaanite woman recognizes Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the king of the whole earth, sent from God and ushering in God's kingdom. So yeah, that's kind of a big deal. And then she begs this Messiah for mercy. In what way? What mercy is she seeking? She says, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Wow. The word for daughter here implies a young female child, and that's actually what Mark said was was her her little daughter, her young daughter. And this young daughter of hers is severely oppressed by a demon. Her little girl is demonized, severely oppressed, Please help me, God-man, because my little girl is being ravaged by a demon whom I am powerless against. But you, Jesus, you, son of David, you, Lord, you can help her. Please show me mercy by coming and ridding my little girl of this demon. Now, can you feel the urgency, the desperate plea that she has here? Can you imagine her mind and thoughts when she caught wind that Jesus, that Jesus from down in Israel had come to town? Can you just Are you sure it's him? The Jesus who's been healing people and sending demons out of people? He's here in this town now? Where is he? <clears throat> I've got to get to him. He can help my daughter. Where did you say he was again? I'll go now. And go she does. Crying out, begging Jesus to help her daughter. Please, Jewish Messiah, have mercy on me and help my daughter, please. And, you know, I'm sure that Jesus was impressed with this, don't you think? Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. 
And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. Hmm. Okay, then. That's a little bit unexpected, right? After watching the ministry of Jesus to this point, he's shown compassion over and over and over to so many people. We talked about that a few weeks ago, the compassion that he had for the crowds. He's healed all that were brought to him. He's gone across the Sea of Galilee to send a legion of demons out of two guys in a cave in Gadara. He's fed thousands and extended grace to sinner after sinner. But here, this desperate woman whose little girl needs delivered from a demon gets not a word. But he did not answer her a word. She's yelling at him, crying out for him to show himself as Messiah and gets, in return, crickets. Like he's got something or maybe nothing better to do. <clears throat> and this must have gone on for a little bit, him not answering her, because his disciples end up begging him. It says they're begging him, send her away, for she's crying out after us. And that word crying out is used to describe the cry of a raven. Grating, high-pitched. It means to utter aloud, often with surprise, horror, or joy. Now this woman was neither surprised nor joyous. Her loud cries were horrific cries of desperation. To the point that the disciples beg, they literally beg Jesus to do something. Jesus, please send her away because she's squawking like a raven and won't leave us alone. Send her away. Well, now Jesus won't stand for that, but he won't take that from his men, will he? Look at verse 24. <clears throat> he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now what? Wow, who is this guy? This doesn't seem to be the Jesus that we know from Matthew's gospel at this point, does it? He's ministered to Jews, to pagans, to Gentiles, believers, non-believers, allies, foes, friends, and strangers. Now what's all this about? What's this Jewish nationalistic fervor here? I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Really, Jesus? That's why you're not addressing this panicking woman? And what's that mean? Well, it's not completely new. When Jesus had sent out his disciples back in chapter 10 of Matthew, he gave them this instruction in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather, and here's the phrase, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his instruction to them then. But, but why this now? Well, it's true, really. Jesus had come as the Jewish Messiah the one God, had the, the, the one person, the one Messiah that God had promised to his people as their promised ruler of all things. He revealed the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, and by and large, they rejected him. We saw him declare that at the end of chapter 12 of Matthew when he said that his mother and his brothers were those who did the will of his father. And then he went into chapter 13 telling parables to hide truth from some while revealing it to others. And most of who he was hiding that truth from were Jewish people because they had rejected him. This kingdom of the heavens that he was teaching about and ushering in would include the whole world, just as God promised Abraham way back in Genesis. But Jesus' earthly ministry was focused primarily on who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they would reject him. So he's not really saying something wrong here. I mean, he's Jesus. He's not going to say something wrong. When he replies to the disciples' request to do something about this lady with what he says, he's saying, in essence, I didn't come to help Gentile Canaanite women not really on my ministry agenda. But again, my question is why? Why would he say that here? 
He hadn't said it in any other time, any other place. Why now? Well, <clears throat> he knows what he's doing, obviously. Watch. Watch how she responds in verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. I, I, I really like this lady. <laughs> she's persistent and she's on point. Not to be denied, she presses in and comes and kneels before him. The word for knelt before literally means that she worshipped, that she bowed down before him. It means to fall down either on the knees or on the face and ascribe worth and honor to the one being addressed. She worships. And what does she say or do in her worship? She says to him, Lord, help me. Her worship leads her to recognize his lordship and ask him for help. She's taken the son of David route. She had petitioned his messiahship. Now she's just calling out to the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, to please, please help her. No fancy words. No more explanation needed. Just three simple words. Lord, help me. She comes to the one who can, and she asks him simply to do what only he can do. Help her. Help me, she says. Now, now, I bet Jesus will respond to her in a more positive way, right? She's pressed in, she's worshipped him, and now surely he'll help this poor lady and her demonized daughter, right? Now, verse 26, you're not ready for this. Verse 26, And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Excuse me? Who, who said what? To whom here? Read it again. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yikes. For real, Jesus? I mean, for real? He replies to this woman's worship and cry for help by calling her a dog. Now, this was a common epithet of Jews for Gentiles. They would refer to Gentiles as Gentile dogs or just dogs. Jesus plays the race card here and plays it in a seemingly ugly way. He had said that he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the children referred to here. You don't take what is the children and give it to the dog. The children are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right to take bread, which is his help, his kindness, which is intended for Jewish folk, and throw it to the Gentile dogs. It's not right, he says. Now, just imagine being at a dinner where there wasn't much food, like so many of these people were accustomed to, and someone takes the little bit of bread that their kids have on their plate and they throw the bread to the dogs who were running around the house. Now, what would you think of somebody like that? who took what little their kids had and fed it to their dogs. Well, as a mandatory reporter in the state of West Virginia, I would report that kind of abuse to the proper authorities. You don't starve your kids in order to feed your dogs, regardless of how much you may love said dogs. So Jesus is right in that way. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's true on one hand. But man, it seems awful rude on the other hand, right? Seems awful rude, doesn't it? This woman has shown passionate faith and worshipped Jesus, and he dismisses her, listen, as a dog who is not worthy to receive from his hand what he's asking for. He says she's not worthy. He says she's a dog. Essentially saying, now get. Now, who is this Jesus? What is he doing? What is he saying? Well, how does she respond? is a better question to ask here, and you're not ready for this verse either. Verse 27, which 
to which I just say, wow, listen to this, verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It's hard to find words for this verse here. <clears throat> it's amazing. He just called her a dog and said that she is not worthy of his help. And she says, what? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And to me, this may be the biggest two words in this passage. Now imagine this scenario with me. <clears throat> We're at church together. I know that's kind of a novel concept right now, huh? I finish the sermon that I'm preaching. I'm talking to a couple of guys, like is normal up front, and some lady comes up <clears throat> asking me to help her with something, and I say, somebody get this dog out of here. She's not worth my time. Now, how do you think that might fly? Ladies, how would that sit with you? If it was done in the right context, I would say that it would meet with a lot of negative attention, don't you think? I would be called a lot of things by a lot of different people, and rightfully so. I might be called chauvinistic. I might be called bigoted. I might be called patriarchal. I might be called hateful, mean. What might the lady that I said that about think and feel? You think she might feel contempt? Amazement? Shock? Confusion? Fury? Probably at least. Now, to be clear, I'm not Jesus, and I don't want to make that comparison. <clears throat> but this Jewish rabbi just literally called a Canaanite woman a dog in response to her asking him for help with her demonized daughter. And while the world of her time, the internet of our time, and most decent folk of any time would be frothing with anger about this, she says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And all I can say to that is, wow, this woman... She says, yes, Lord. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't try to vindicate herself. She doesn't contend with him to his face. No, she agrees with him. She agrees with him that she is a dog and does not deserve for him to do for her what she is asking. Remember, she had asked for mercy, right? She was asking to not get what she deserved. And she shows that here. But she doesn't stop there. She says, yes, Lord, yet. You're right, I agree. Yet. I am a dog, and I'm not worthy of the food that belongs to the children. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Wow. She is something else. She has sought him. She has entreated him for mercy. She has pressed in. She has worshipped him. She has asked for his help. She has agreed with him. She has realized her place and she now asks him for just a crumb. I don't deserve it, but will you mercifully let a crumb fall my way, dog that I am? I'll take whatever falls my way as long as it falls from your table. Is this not what it means to be saved? Is this not saving faith in full view with no filter? I'm nothing and have nothing, but will gladly receive whatever God sends my way. Is this not Matthew 5, 3, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in action? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus had said there at the very front door of that sermon, the very first words that he spoke up on that mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said then, and on many other occasions, that the word poor for poor in spirit is a word that means destitute, 
like a crouching beggar who comes with nothing in their hands and their hands will remain empty until someone else fills them up. They have not the means nor the resources to make their hands full. They can only receive. And if they do not receive, they perish. And what did Jesus say about these kind of people? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That is saving faith. That is how we should approach God in our initial approach to him. Not commending ourselves, not defending ourselves, not claiming our rights, not with any sense of entitlement, but with pure poverty of spirit. This woman got it. She understood. Her words and her actions show it. But Jesus has stiff-armed her to this point. Now, how will he respond to what she just said? Look at verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. For whatever reason, Jesus wanted to see this woman pushed to the very edge of belief and hope. And once he got her there, and she responded well, then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman. I love that. Oh, woman. It's an exclamation, a proclamation of wonder. Jesus, no longer dismissive or indifferent, not that he ever really was, marvels at this woman. I just can't help but imagine him looking her full in the face, their eyes meeting, maybe him lifting her head or placing his hand on her shoulder and saying, Oh, woman, great is your faith. He addressed her and her faith in an incredulous way, and he says her faith is what? Great. Back when Jesus had calmed the storm in the boat with the disciples, the disciples were said to be greatly afraid. We said there the, the Greek phrasing is megas phobos. Here it is this woman's faith that is megas. Megas pistis is the Greek phrase. Oh woman, you have megas pistis. You have great faith. Jesus is impressed. He's impressed with her faith in him. She has shown it consistently as he pushed her aside, dismissed her, insulted her, and gave her every reason not to believe that he would help her. And she pressed on in faith, not in her or who she is, but in who she knew Jesus was. He was Lord. He was the son of David. He was the one who could help her daughter and show her mercy. Her faith was in him, even when he seemed opposed to helping her. Even when he seemed opposed to changing her situation, her faith in him and who he was remained firm. And Jesus marvels. He marvels. And he doesn't just marvel. He gives her what she's asking for. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. You want your daughter to be free from the demon that is oppressing her? It's done be it done for you as you desire. Why? Because of her faith in him. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, here in Matthew, we don't have any indication that her daughter was with her. And Mark tells us in Mark 7.30, And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So this little girl was home in bed. And when Jesus spoke these words, that demon left that little girl instantly, just as she had desired. Her desires were met in the person and the work of Jesus. He did what no one else could do. He showed himself to be who she thought he was. 
Her faith was rewarded, and both she and her daughter saw the power of the Son of David, Israel's Lord, her Lord, our Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, how in the world should we apply this soaring passage? We actually have four application points this week because it's such a powerful passage. Four A's. We've got four A's for application points. We've got actions, assessment, acceptance, and adoption. Actions, assessment, acceptance, and adoption. So first of the four A's is actions. And what we want to focus on here is God's actions in his world, which is pretty pertinent in our day and time, right? As we worked through this passage today, we saw Jesus acting in a way that I would consider peculiar. It's odd to see Jesus disregard and seemingly dismiss someone who had a legitimate need. This lady today was sincere and exhibited faith that few in the Bible showed. So, why did Jesus reference her race and call her a dog? I can't say for 100% sure, but it would seem that he was testing her, pushing her to show this faith in ways that spoke volumes to those around her and even to us today because it's recorded in the scripture. Okay, that's fine, but doesn't that seem mean? Doesn't it seem bad or even wrong? That does to us, I'm sure, but here's the deal. And please don't miss this. God does what God does for reasons we may or may not ever understand. God does what God does, and he does it for reasons and in ways that we may not ever understand. And on top of that, he and his reasons are always, and, and again, don't miss that word, he and his reasons are always good. And we do not and will not always understand or see that clearly. He says in Isaiah 55, 6-9, now listen to this whole passage. We've quoted this, the end of this passage a few times in application points, but I want you to hear a little bit more of the context here in verses 6-9. through nine. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God thinks differently than us, and he acts differently than us, and he offers pardon. He calls on people to seek him while he may be found, and he says, I'll forgive, I'll give pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. He's God, and he offers pardon, and he gives that pardon to all who will come to him and seek that pardon, and we don't fully understand that, how or why. But he's God and we're not. I promise you, in all of our lives, individually, corporately, in this big, wide world, I promise you, we don't see the whole picture. But God does. And he knows what he's doing. He told Habakkuk this in Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. We've looked at this um, back a few Wednesday nights ago. God is saying, I'm doing something in your day 
even if I told you what I was doing, you would not believe it. Here, God makes it clear that even if he told us what he was doing, we wouldn't believe it. And the same could be said of so many situations in our lives. Even if we knew what he was doing, we wouldn't believe it, and we couldn't understand it. So what's the application point? Here as we look at actions. Press on in faith, like this lady in the passage today. She wasn't put off by Jesus. She wasn't put off by what he was doing and what he was saying, even though she didn't understand it. She continued in faith until Jesus responded and healed her child. Her faith was in him, who she knew him to be. And even as he tested her, she persevered in faith, trusting him and his goodness. In our situations, in our life experiences, it may seem cold or uncaring or like he's ignoring us. It may seem like he's mean. It may seem like he's not in control. But he is in control. And he's not mean. He's not distant. He's not uncaring. He's not cold. He may be testing us. He may be disciplining us. But he cannot and will not forsake us. Trust him for who he is and wait for him to show who he is and what he's doing, even if we don't understand it completely. So that's actions. Now, assessment. And this is a tough one, okay? This has to do with God's assessment of us. Now, I want to operate in this application point from the viewpoint of a person who does not know God, who has not trusted Jesus to save them. What is God's assessment of that person? I'm afraid that we've bought into the cultural lie that God loves everybody, and that means that regardless of the state of our souls, whether we're saved or not, that God loves us all the same. But the Bible is clear that that is not true. Let me spitball just a few verses out uh, that show, show in many ways how this is true, and this is just a few of the possible ones that I could bring up. First one is Colossians 1.21. And you, actually we're going to read through 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It says that we, all of us, once, before we came to God, were alienated, that we were hostile in mind, and that we were doing evil deeds. Now Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 3, listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, listen, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now I'll stop there, but I think it's imperative to see that we are all, all of us by nature, children of wrath. That means that we're enemies of God. We're hostile in mind in mind, and in our deeds. Jesus even called the Pharisees the sons of the devil. I think the picture is clear that in our natural state, in our natural state, we are shown common grace. The sun shines on all of us. The rain falls on all of us. But don't get that confused with God's love. Common grace is not the same as God's love. God's love is that redeeming and saving love, and that does not rest on all people. And the application point for us is simply to know this truth, that we are by nature children of wrath. That is God's assessment of us in and of ourselves, in our natural self. So then what? That leads to our third application point, which is acceptance. 
actions, assessment, now acceptance. What is our response to God's assessment? Are you going to try to justify yourself in God's sight? As an enemy of God, are you going to stand up for your rights and tell God why he should accept you or love you in the midst of your sins and transgressions? Are you going to try to convince him that you're not that bad, you're not like Hitler, or just doing the best you can and expect him to overlook your sinful state because you're a pretty good person? It does not work that way. And if you have never listened to me, if you have never seen your sinful state and confess that, you are not saved. How should we respond to God's calling us enemies? How should we respond to being called a sinful dog? Like this lady responded today, we should say, yes, Lord. That's right. We say, yes, Lord. We accept his assessment of us. And we cry out for mercy. We cry out for grace, knowing that we have nothing in and of ourselves to commend ourselves to a holy God. We cannot take sin lightly and wink and nod and expect God to wink and nod and let us into heaven like some good old grandpa who won't tell our parents what we did. Listen, we are not entitled to God's forgiveness and grace. We can't earn it or deserve it. We accept our state and ask him for mercy. We cry out for grace and entrust ourselves to that mercy and grace with no effort on our part at all to vindicate ourselves. The very first step to being saved is to know that you need saved and that you cannot save yourself. Accept that and place your faith in him, not yourself. Not your situation, not your circumstances or surroundings. Place your faith in Him. God is sovereign over salvation, and we are not. And we have to accept that. That's the application point. We went through Romans uh, a couple years ago, and we got to Romans 9, which is just, a, John Piper says, Romans 9 is like a tiger that pounces on you when you get to it. Romans 9, 19-24 says this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now that's... There's a ton of implications in that passage. But our main takeaway from that passage when we were working through Romans was this. The clay has nothing to say. He is the potter. We are the clay that belongs to him. And we have nothing to say in who he is and how he does things. And when he says that we are sinners and that we have no hope of saving ourselves, our response is to be, yes, Lord. The clay has nothing to say. The clay looks at what the potter does, what the potter has done in him, for him, with him, and looks to the potter and says, Yes, Lord, accept that. Then we can get to point four, which is adoption. Actions, assessment, acceptance, and finally, adoption. And this is the good news of the gospel which we've seen the bad news, we're all sinners. Now, once we've seen 
God, for who he is, understood his assessment of us and accepted that assessment, then we can see our new role in God's family. As those who are adopted, redeemed, restored, forgiven, and blessed of God. Now, Our Lady today that we saw in our passage endured being ignored, dismissed, and insulted. And in the end, she got not only what she came for, but the very praise of Jesus himself. I wholeheartedly believe that she was saved that day. She came with saving faith and met the object of her faith face to face. And I wholeheartedly believe that she was saved that day as evidenced by her megas, her great faith. Her position went from dog to favored one. And that's what happens to us when we place our faith in Jesus for who he is and what he has done and what he will do for us. Colossians 1.13 describes it this way. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, verse 14 says, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us, he does, to the kingdom of his beloved son. From darkness to sonship. From enemy to son. That's what happens in the process of God adopting us into his family. As we see him, place our faith in him, and he shows his grace to us. Galatians 4, 3-7 through 7 describes this beautifully. And this is the last passage we'll look at today. Galatians 4, verses 3-7. through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And listen, and if a son, then an heir through God. From dog, from sinner, to heir, to son. It was when this adoption takes place that then we hear Jesus say, like he did to Our Lady today, be it done for you as you desire. And that's the gospel. We come with nothing but empty hands. We come with nothing but need. We see God's assessment of us, which is not worthy of his forgiveness. We don't deserve it. And we say to that assessment, yes, Lord. And we cry out to him in faith, and he shows us grace and adopts us into his family as his own for his glory, for our good. And no, we don't see the whole picture. No, we don't know how he has brought all this about. And no, not everything just goes away and gets better once we're saved. But our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our faith are fixed on him now. And we trust him to do what only he can do. And we accept his assessment and rest in him, placing our faith in him. Now as sons, not as dogs, not as enemies. And our father who loves us marvels at our faith and says, Great is your faith. Be it done to you, for you, what you have desired. And he is what we desire 
He is what we long for. And as we place our faith in him and rest in him, we find what we would have never found in and of ourselves, which is truth, wholeness, glory, goodness, mercy, and grace, which will follow us all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your plan of salvation is perfect. We thank you that your plan in this world, in our day and time, is perfect. And no, we do not see the full picture. No, we don't understand everything. But your ways are not our ways. Your actions are not our actions. And God, I pray that we would see your assessment of ourselves, of this situation that's going on around us, and that we would rest in you, that we would accept that assessment and see the hope that is ours through adoption by grace into your family and that we would find our rest in you and that you would be glorified by who we are, what we say, and what we do with the Spirit who comes to make his residence in our hearts and in our lives. Do what only you can do, God. Give us grace, peace, hope, and joy in this troubled time and help us to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. And God, if there's somebody listening to this who does not know you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sins. Show them their natural condition. Help them to accept that assessment. And help them to place your faith, their faith in you, in the finished work of Christ, so that they might be adopted into your family. Give us the grace we need for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.